I'm Avery Smith, and you're listening to Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, a multi-faith podcast of transgender stories. It's another month of pandemic, and another month where I don't have an interview for you. I'm sorry, it's really hard for me to do, like, multiple big things at once, and I've been really busy with my church internship. So a lot of my online ministry has fallen by the wayside. Because of that fact, I've made it so that my patrons on Patreon will not be billed for the month of July. I just didn't do enough this month to merit your support, but thank you always for your generosity. So what I have for you this month is another exploration of a trans figure in scripture. Once again, a figure shared by Jewish and Christian communities. And I relate her to a much larger, in fact, a global history of gender diversity. The figure we're talking about today is Rebecca, the boy maiden, as Chris Page calls her. I'm going to use Rebecca's story, as told in chapters 24 and 25 of Genesis, to discuss how the rise of patriarchy and class impacted persons whom we might identify as trans or otherwise gender diverse. It's honestly an overambitious endeavor, so hopefully I'll be even marginally coherent here. If you notice any errors in anything I say, or if you have any more resources on these subjects for me, please let me know. I want to keep learning about this stuff because it's just really cool to me. So, I preached on the story of Rebecca's pregnancy and the conflict between her sons, Jacob and Esau, a couple weeks ago. In that sermon, I focused on Jacob and Esau, exploring Jacob's marginalized experience as a second-born son in a world where men assigned firstborn inherit absolute authority over the rest of their family. I talked about how Jacob was able to dream bigger than the marginalized identity assigned to him, and he won the power and status that was meant to go to his brother, But he failed to dream beyond the systems that had oppressed him. He advances and assimilates, becomes a patriarch himself, and perpetuates the familial conflict that is the fruit of patriarchy. I said in my sermon that part of why Jacob fails to imagine bigger than patriarchy is because his world did not offer him any models of any other way to live, But that's not quite true. Jacob's mother, Rebecca, comes from a family that does not seem to be centered around a patriarch. Rather, her family, as described in Genesis 24, includes elements of the matrilineal, matrilocal communities that preceded patriarchal ones across the ancient world, and in some places continue to the present day. 
Those matrilineal communities were much kinder to people who don't fit into rigid categories of male and female. In fact, Rebecca herself seems to be one such person. Rebecca enters the biblical narrative just as Abraham's servant is searching for a wife for Abraham's son Isaac. This servant has traveled all the way back to Abraham's homeland, and he's sitting with his camels by a well where women have come to get the evening's water. And among them is Rebecca, who is described in the original Hebrew of the text not as a young woman, but as a young man. All of the verbs and pronouns used for Rebecca in the Hebrew are feminine ones, and the servant perceives Rebecca as a suitable match for Isaac, and yet one of the nouns used to describe Rebecca is na'ar. Na'ar is the Hebrew word that means a young man. It is sometimes translated as lad in English, which always cracks me up. Na'ar's feminine counterpart, meaning young woman, is na'ar-ah. The Hebrew letter he is at the end. And that extra letter that makes the word feminine is missing in all of the several uses of this noun for Rebecca in Genesis 24. Now, if you're running to go look up Genesis 24 and see if it really calls Rebecca a young man or a lad, you're not going to see it in the English. It has been edited because translators just couldn't fathom the idea of Rebecca being called Na'ar. And neither could the Jewish scholars who preserved the Hebrew Bible over a thousand years after this story was first written down. Between the 7th and 10th centuries CE, the Jewish Masoretes applied themselves to the good and vital work of making sure that the Hebrew of their scriptures would not be lost. I don't have time to talk your ear off about these cool medieval dudes, but one thing that the Masoretes did is invent vowel markers to add to Hebrew manuscripts to make sure that future generations would know how to properly pronounce the words, because original Hebrew writing did not include vowels. And when those Masoretes came across Rebecca getting called Na'ar, they added a vowel marker to the word so that it would be pronounced na'ara, young woman instead of young man. It is still spelled wrong in the Hebrew, it's missing that last letter hey, but when you say it out loud, it sounds right. But let me rein myself in before I get too deep in Hebrew and lose all of you. The main question is, why does the original Hebrew text decide to call Rebecca Na'ar. I turn to Chris Page's explanation in their book, Otherwise Christian. It is possible, Page writes, that Na'ar does not have to mean young man, that it was also used as a gender-neutral term to suggest an emergent youth who has not yet been identified according to the distinctions of adult gender. Similarly, given Rebecca's character, we can imagine that na'ar may have functioned like the English word tomboy, indicating a youthful gender ambiguity, end quote. Of course, like so-called tomboys in our world, I imagine that someone like Rebecca would be expected to grow out of her gender ambiguity, to let go of her identity as na'ar once she got old enough to seek a sexual partner 
and put on the feminine identity Na'ara. Yet here she is, of marrying age, still getting called Na'ar. Chris Page draws from Rachel Brody's work in Torah Queries to describe how Rebecca possesses many masculine traits, including physical strength, stamina, bold social behavior, and independence. When Rebecca comes to the well, where Abraham's servant is sitting, he asks her for a drink. She gives him one and talks to him, despite living in a culture where women were not meant to interact directly with men outside of their family. Rebecca then draws water for all ten of his camels, which would require quite a lot of muscle. Now, I do want to caution us from assuming that physical strength has always been perceived as an exclusively masculine trait just because it is in our culture. I have read that biblical Israelites saw strong arms good for gardening, for drawing water, for weaving and kneading dough as a desirable trait in a woman. Think of that good woman in Proverbs 31, who is described in verse 17 as working energetically and having powerful arms. But even if we accept that physical strength is not necessarily part of what makes Rebecca a Na'ar, there is plenty more about her character that does not fit into a woman's gender roles in biblical Israel. Next, Rebecca allows this strange man to touch her, to put a gold ring on her nose and gold bracelets on her arms. And then, when this guy asks her whether there might be room in her father's house for him and his camels, she doesn't tell him she has to go check with a male authority to see whether he can stay. She tells him straight up that yes, they have room for him. And, she says, we have plenty of straw and feed for the camels. Not, my father has plenty of straw, but we Rebecca clearly sees her family's resources as belonging to the whole family, not just to a male head of household. And that brings me to the discussion of Rebecca's family as one that offers a different picture of what a biblical household could look like than that of Abraham's household. Abraham's household, like so many that we see in the Bible, is a bet of, a Hebrew phrase meaning house of the father. It's a patriarchal structure, with one man holding all authority over everybody else in the household, and in fact, owning all of those members as property, the same way that all his land and resources belong to him. It's also patrilocal, meaning that the patriarch chooses where the family lives, and that in a marriage, the woman will come live with the man's family, rather than the man up and moving in with the woman's family. Finally, a bet of is patrilineal, meaning that the family line is based around its male members. That's why biblical figures are constantly being identified as X, son or daughter of father's name, son of grandfather's name, son of great-great-grandfather's name, and so on. They are tied to their father and their grandfather, but not to their mother or their grandmother. But not in this story. In this story, Rebecca's grandfather and grandmother are named. She identifies herself as Rebecca, daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah and Nahor. Milcah is Rebecca's paternal grandmother. This identification is both patrilineal and matrilineal. Furthermore, 
while Abraham's servant assumes that Rebecca's household is set up like Abraham's, asking her if there's room in her father's house, the Bet Av, it turns out that Rebecca lives in her mother's house, the Bet Em. The authors of An Introduction to the Hebrew Bible explain that biblical passages that speak of a Bet Em, a house of the mother, highlight women characters and their concerns. They thus view the household from a female perspective. These texts, which include this one, the Book of Ruth and the Song of Songs, reveal perspectives other than that of the dominant Bet Av about the shape of the biblical family. They suggest that the family was far from monolithic in form in biblical Israel. The fact that there was not only one type of household or family structure in biblical Israel matters a lot for various reasons. One reason this matters is that it means that the patriarchal structure, where one male controls everything and everyone, and the firstborn son inherits almost everything, did not have to be the way things were. People could and did imagine alternatives. Another reason that multiple family structures is significant to us in our day is that it can serve as a counter-argument against those who claim that there is only one correct godly family unit, and that that one correct way to be a family involves a cisgender, heterosexual, monogamous couple. And these people may throw in the fact that the husband should be the head of the family, too. Meanwhile, one of the Bible verses that these people love to quote to support their argument describes a family structure that was actually less common in later biblical Israel. Genesis 2:24 reads, Thus a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. This verse presumes a man leaving his family and going to live in his wife's house, a matrilocal setup unlike the patrilocal system of a woman moving into her husband's house that we see more often in the Bible. Just as Genesis 2.24's description of one type of relationship does not necessarily mean a rejection of all other types of relationship, so Rebecca's Bet-Em can exist in the same world as Abraham's Bet-Av. And indeed, a matrilocal, matrilineal structure, a structure where multiple family members share authority and make decisions together, as when Rebecca and her brother work together to make their guest comfortable, or when her brother and mother both leave her the choice to head off with this servant. It is likely the much older structure. In Here Work, Transgender Warriors, Leslie Feinberg discusses her research into the history of patriarchy as part of her search for transgender ancestors, for gender diversity in past centuries. Z writes that Z discovered that all of our earliest ancestors lived in communal societies based on cooperation and sharing. Group cooperation required respect for the contributions and insights of each individual, which we see in the fact that Rebecca's opinion on her own fate is respected. Communal societies were not severed into haves and have-nots. No small group held power over others through private ownership of the tools necessary to sustain life. 
All my life I had heard the cynical views that intolerance and greed were products of a flawed human nature. But thou shalt not steal would have been a bewildering command to people who lived in societies where everyone ate or everyone starved because their survival relied on teamwork. I realized that human nature has changed along with the organization of society. End quote. On the topic of human nature, as something that changes alongside changes in social organization, Joy Layden claims that one of the Bible's most famous tales about changing nature offers an origin story for patriarchy. She describes how Adam, who with Eve comprised the first human, who was then split in two, invents gender as a way of interpreting his and Eve's physical differences. In chapter 2 of Genesis, Adam looks upon Eve and recognizes their similarities first. This one is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and notices their differences second. And Adam decides to name that difference man, the Hebrew word ish, and woman, isha. But at that point, when he just names those differences, Layden writes, citing Phyllis Tribble as she does so, Neither God nor Adam says anything that identifies the gender binary with male dominance or female submission. It is only after they eat the fruit that God forbade them to eat that gender, which had simply been descriptive before, becomes an engine of inequality. God curses these two humans based on gender. In Genesis 3:16 through 17, God tells the woman that her man will rule over her and that she will experience hard labor in childbearing. Meanwhile, the man will experience hard labor in farming. Even here, Joy Layden writes, at the mythic dawn of patriarchy, Genesis hints that there could and should be a better form of gender. God presents patriarchy as a curse on men as well as women. And though patriarchy is the final step in the biblical genesis of gender, it is presented not as an inevitable outgrowth of inherent differences, but as the unforeseen tragic consequence of human violation of God's command, end quote. Patriarchy is not part of God's original intentions for humanity. I would even push against Leyden when she says that it's a curse or a punishment from God and say that we don't have to see God's words to Adam and Eve about Adam ruling over Eve and all of that as a curse or a punishment that God orchestrates, but rather as God simply explaining what God sees is going to happen, rather than God causing it to happen. Patriarchy is not inevitable. There can and have been other ways to live, just as the tiny glimpse into Rebecca's family unit in Genesis 24 suggests. As Leslie Feinberg puts it, to hear the Bible thumpers, you would think that the nuclear family, headed by men, has always existed. But I found that the existence of matrilineal societies on every continent has been abundantly documented. Up until the 15th century, a great majority of the world's population lived in communal, matrilineal societies. 
This was true throughout Africa, large parts of Asia, the Pacific Islands, Australia, and the Americas. If all of human history were shrunk to the scale of one year, over 360 days of historical time belong to cooperative matrilineal societies. End quote. Genesis explains the shift from communal living into patriarchy with the expulsion from Eden. Sociologists have a different theory for how patriarchy arose in various regions of the globe. For our current focus on Israel, Feinberg says that anthropologists have traced the migration of a whole number of Semitic tribes, the Israelite people just being one among them, from Arabia into the Fertile Crescent sometime around 1500 BCE. While much of this land was, as the name suggests, fertile, the authors of An Introduction to the Hebrew Bible explain that much of the Cisjordan region settled by the Israelites consists of steep and rocky hillsides. In order to produce enough food to sustain the population, farmers could not stick only to the gentler valleys, but also had to engage in the labor-intensive work of building and maintaining terraces on the hillside slopes. Issues on those hillside slopes included poor soil, soil erosion, and having to rely on rainfall instead of river irrigation, which meant that droughts were very common. Finally, incredible diversity marked both the topography and the climate throughout the whole region, creating thousands of ecological micro-niches. To farm any given plot of land effectively, you needed to have intimate knowledge of its distinct soils, its unique terracing needs and rainfall patterns, and so on. Thus, it made sense for the same little group to settle down and maintain the same plot of land year in and year out, passing the knowledge of what worked for that particular land down the generations. And thus, these little groups that had once been nomadic, settled down, became tied to their plots of land, and began to amass some capital. Feinberg points to this gradual accumulation of wealth, in the form of herds, agriculture, and trade, to deepening class divisions among the Israelites, as well as a more rigid barrier coming up between men and women and a preoccupation with being able to classify every individual as explicitly male or female. In every society in which human labor grew more productive with the use of improved tools and techniques, Feinberg writes, people stored up more than what they needed for immediate consumption. Generationally, men who had primarily been wild game hunters domesticated and herded large animals, which represented the first wealth. Men, therefore, were in charge of stockpiling this abundance. Cattle, sheep, goats, horses, and the surplus of dried and smoked meats and hides, milk, cheese, and yogurt. Prior to this surplus, tools, utensils, and other possessions were commonly owned within the matrilineal community. As wealth accumulated in the male sphere of labor, the family structure began to change, and men began to pass on inheritance to their male heirs. Those who had large families and other advantages gathered and stored more surplus. 
These inequalities, small at first, became the basis of the enrichment of some male tribal members over the women and the tribe as a whole. Communal societies in which labor was voluntary and collective gave way to unequal societies in which those who owned wealth forced others to work for them, an enforced social relationship of masters and slaves. This took place at different times, in different places, over a period of many centuries. End quote. Feinberg says that the laws shared in the biblical book of Deuteronomy reflect the deepening of patriarchal class divisions among the Hebrews who lived in and around communal societies that still worshipped goddesses, such as Ashtaroth, Ishtar, Isis, and Sibylle. Those communal societies continued to enjoy a little less rigidity in their gender norms allowing some individuals to move between or even beyond the two binary genders. For instance, a lot of the priestesses of these goddesses would be people that we would consider assigned male at birth. Meanwhile, the wealthy landowners of biblical Israel and other societies saw such gender fluidity as a threat to their patriarchal rule. After all, if a woman could behave as a man, could she demand an inheritance? If someone assigned female at birth proclaimed himself to be a man, could he also proclaim himself the head of his household, taking it away from a real man in their eyes? And if someone assigned male at birth behaved in a feminine manner, did that person still deserve the power and privilege that's meant to belong to a man? Thus it was that these wealthy men were very much concerned about making distinctions between men and women and eliminating any blurring or bridging of those categories. And the more power they amassed, the more they were able to actually enforce a rigid gender binary, with laws like the ones in Deuteronomy that forbid cross-dressing. But all the laws in the world cannot wipe out gender diversity. It will emerge time and time again. We will fight for our right to live as our true selves, whether we do so quietly or overtly. And thus we find Rebecca the Na'ar, the strong and outspoken lad who gives an eager yes to leaving her mother's household to go get her husband. And we aren't quite done exploring her story yet. As Rebecca and Abraham's servant enter Canaan, they spot a man in the distance. Rebecca asks the servant who he is and is told that it is Isaac, the man she has come to marry. Rebecca responds by covering herself with her headscarf, a sudden act of modesty from this Na'ar who had not been afraid to talk to a strange man or let him put bracelets on her wrists. And just as a quick aside, because I'm about to expand this one verse about Rebecca covering herself with her headscarf into a metaphor, I want to clarify that I fully support the women and persons of other genders who choose any kind of head covering as part of their culture or religion. My example here is not about that fully consensual choice to cover oneself. In this story, I see Rebecca's choice to physically veil herself as part of her metaphorical masking of her true identity. Most acts of veiling are not about submission or accepting oppressive gender roles. Rather, they are about asserting one's own identity and autonomy, not masking it. 
but for Rebecca, who seems not to have chosen this kind of covering for herself in her past, but decides to adopt it now, I do see it as a covering up of identity that she fears to reveal. This is risky ground to tread with this metaphor, and I hope my meaning comes across respectfully. Let me know if it doesn't. It seems to me that Rebecca has decided to try to adopt the customs of her new home. She comes from a communal household where her opinion and agency are respected, to some degree at least, but she understands that the household she is about to enter follows different rules. For her first encounter with Isaac, she decides to meet his expectations. She covers up her face, yes, but much more importantly, she covers up her bold and boyish identity. I'm reminded of trans persons when we choose to stay in or re-enter the closet for a while. Some of us will live out and proud among friends or at home, but put on the clothes and name assigned to our birth gender when we go to apply for a new job or visiting certain relatives. It may be that we decide at some point that we can trust our new workplace or a certain relationship with our true selves and take off the mask at some point. So it is with Rebecca. She puts on the role of a woman in a bet of. She's left her family to move in with Isaacs. She covers herself to meet a new man. And she lets her husband pray for her when she goes 20 years without conceiving. So that brings me to the next part of her story, where she finally becomes pregnant with twins after not conceiving for such a long time living with Isaac. Why isn't Rebecca said to pray for her own infertility? Chris Page suggests that it could be that Rebecca does not want to get pregnant, does not want to be placed in the role of mother. Many transmasculine persons experience a similar repugnance at the idea of getting pregnant or being expected to play the role of mom. Isaac has to pray for Rebecca, or, as the Hebrew can also be translated, he prays over against her wishes, because she isn't going to pray for herself. But once Rebecca becomes pregnant and feels her womb in turmoil, she lets the veil she's wrapped around her bold and boyish identity slip a little. She finally raises her own voice, calls out to God on her own behalf, demanding to know why this is happening to her. God responds to her demand with a blessing, a nation-making promise like the one that God made to Abraham. God sees behind Rebekah's mask to the strong-willed Na'ar, who would rather live in a Bet-Em than a Bet-Av, in charge of her own self and her own family. God sees and responds to that core identity by giving Rebekah a chance to seize agency for herself. It is Rebecca, Chris Page points out, not Isaac, who receives the inheritance of God's covenant. She will be the parent of two nations. It is remarkable how Isaac fades into the background once Rebecca establishes a direct relationship with God. It is as if Rebecca, the boy slash maiden, supplants Isaac as the recipient of God's blessing, taking the agency and initiative to pass that blessing along to Jacob. End quote. Rebecca's mask continues to slip as she returns to her former assertive nature, 
She favors her second-born, effeminate son Jacob, over her hyper-masculine first-born son Esau, and she plots to secure Jacob the birthright that's meant to go to Esau. She is the mother of her household, and she, not Isaac, will choose which child to bless. The last we see of Rebecca, she is convincing Isaac to send Jacob away back to Rebecca's homeland to find himself a wife among her family. When Jacob arrives there, he will identify himself as Jacob, son of Rebecca, not son of Isaac. Jacob knows who the real head of his household is. That brings me back to the content of my sermon about Jacob and Esau, where I argued that the kind of power that Jacob manages to win for himself is hardly power worth praising. He assimilates into the patriarchal system that once oppressed him, rather than overturning it and creating something new. And I mused that perhaps he just didn't have any way to imagine something different from patriarchy. Yet, in this episode, I've discussed how Jacob's own mother comes from a family whose structure clearly contains traces of the communal, cooperative living that preceded patriarchy. Did Rebecca ever share stories of her childhood with her little boy? Or was she too busy doing what most of us end up doing to survive the patriarchal, capitalist culture that submerges us? resorting to deception and betrayal in order to get whatever leg up we can. Is Rebecca too busy striving to become a matriarch, to control her household, to show her son that there are other ways to be a family than dominance and infighting? Like all of us, Rebecca is a complex being who cannot be stuffed into one box. Whatever else one might say of her, I love how her story gives us a glimpse into aspects of the biblical world that the Bible's authors don't normally linger over. Chris Page summarizes the story of Rebecca with its hints at non-patriarchal possibilities in this way. At every turn, Rebecca seems to embody incongruity. She is the na'ar slash na'ara that is both boy and maiden. It is not clear that Rebecca even wanted to be a parent, but she becomes a mother of multiple nations. She bears these twin brothers, one distinctly masculine and one distinctly effeminate. She bucks tradition by favoring the more effeminate and second-born of her sons. She deceives and manipulates her husband and is outspoken, even to the point of arguing with God. Rebecca is the otherwise instrument that God uses to birth, bless, and preserve the one who would become Israel. End quote. Those of us who don't fit well into binary boxes are recipients and agents of divine blessing. We are the ones who tend to question the status quo, to dream of how things could be instead of resigning ourselves to what is. And it is vital that we don't get too caught up in just surviving oppressive systems to strive to overturn them. So get out there, my friends, and break some binaries and be a blessing to the world with your life.